Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. And today we are going to study uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, uh, the first beatitude. Uh, we just had our, I'm the high school leader, I don't know if I mentioned that, but I, I lead the high school group here, and we just had our, um, our winter camp and our theme for winter camp this year was revival. And um, we just talked a lot about what, that, what does it mean to be revived? What is um, revival? And surely, as, as soon as I say that word revival, many of you guys probably have images in your mind of what a, re a revival looks like, right? It looks like um, unsaved coming in and getting lost and it's just an overflow of the Holy Spirit and conviction of sin and repentance and, and all of these different things, right? Um, so what is revival? What takes place in a revival? Well, this is um, something that we talked about a lot at camp, but when we think of revival in the Christian sense, um, we often think that this is something that takes place to the world, that, that, that takes place in the world. Um, but I don't think that that's a good way to think of revival. Revival is something that takes place here. Revival is something that takes place within the church. I mean, you can even see that this is true just in the word revival, um, meaning, you know, you were alive and kicking and, you know, you think of like an ambulance situation. A person has a heart attack or something like that. Well, they need to be what? They need to be revived, right? Um, revival is something that is for the church. The church needs to be revived. Now, the world... Um, they just need the vival, right? They, they just need to be, this became a joke at camp, they need to be vived, right? And then we would say, hey, you vived, bro, right? And so they, they need that, that, that vival where the church, we need revival. And I think that this is something that, that must take place in our lives continually. We need to be revived. We need to be refreshed. We need to be revitalized in our walk with the Lord, continually going back to the Lord, continually allowing him to refresh us, allowing him to revive us and to pour himself out into us because the truth is so often we can become distracted with this world. We can become distracted with sin. We can become distracted with our own wants, our own self-will, whatever it may be. Oh, we are believers. We love Jesus. We know the Lord, but we need this revival to take place in our hearts. Revival happens when Jesus takes the proper place in the hearts of his people. That's when revival happens. When Jesus takes the proper place in the hearts of his people. Or as another author put it, revival is just the life of the Lord Jesus poured out in human hearts. That's what revival is. When Jesus himself is poured out into your heart and into my heart. And one of the first things, which we're going to talk about at length today, that needs to take place in this issue of revival. If I want to be revived, I know I love the Lord. I know I'm walking with Jesus. I know that he saved me. But if I want to be revived, refreshed, revitalized, to not have my walk be stagnant, I first need to be broken. I need to be broken. And when I say broken, I don't simply mean that, my, that I'm sad about sin or, you know, I think that that's definitely part of it. I'm not downplaying that. I think that we, we should be um, broken in that sense. But when I say we need to be broken, what I mean is our self-will needs to be broken. Our pride needs to be shattered and smashed to pieces 
To be broken means that who you are as a person is destroyed at the cross of Christ. That's what brokenness is. And so we want Jesus in our lives. We want him to come in. We want him to fill us. We want him to be overflowing from our lives, right? We need to be broken at the cross. And this is exactly what Jesus said. Let's take a look at our passage here. It says here in verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was early on in Jesus' ministry. Um, He had been uh, traveling around the area of Galilee. He had been teaching some. He had been gathering his disciples. Um, In the passage right before this, it talks about how he began to heal those who were sick and diseased and demon-possessed. And so, naturally, he was uh, getting quite a gathering. A lot of people were following him. As I mean, that's, that would be pretty clear. If, if there was a person who was doing the things that Jesus did, they would get quite a gathering, right? And so Jesus, he got quite a gathering. And it says that he sees these multitudes. He went up on a mountain and he was seated. His disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. And this begins one of the most famous addresses that has ever been given in the history of mankind. Uh, He begins to to give the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew uh, chapter five uh, through chapter seven. This is Jesus's address. But what does he start with? He starts with these things that we now call beatitudes. You could also call them the blessings. Beatitude is a Latin term, which just means blessed or blessing. And so uh, he gives these blessings. And what he's saying here is if you wanna live a blessed life, These eight characteristics should define who you are. These beatitudes, it should define you. Uh, You should be these things. You want to live a blessed life? Be these things. Uh, This word blessed is really interesting. Um, it It was a powerful word that Jesus used here. It wasn't just like, hey, brother, be blessed. Now, this was, this was a powerful word. When uh, the hearers heard this word, they would associate it with like a divine joy and a divine happiness. Uh, they would associate it with an inner satisfaction and self-sufficiency that transcends this lifetime and transcends our circumstances or our happenings. It was a very strong word. And so Jesus says, if you want that kind of life, if you want to be blessed beyond measure, If you want to have this inner satisfaction, if you want divine joy and perfect happiness, then these attributes that I'm about to discuss with you need to be yours. They need to be yours. Um, And it's been rightly said that these are the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. They're the be attitudes. You, You should be these things. It's not something that you do. It's who you are. But as you go down this list... I mean, I don't know if, you, if you've ever looked at this list and thought to yourself, well, these characteristics don't really seem like characteristics of a person who's actually blessed. <laughs> um, you, you read here, Jesus said, well, blessed are those who mourn. What? Come again? Or how about here? Blessed are those who are meek. Or even more than that, blessed are those who are persecuted. Those characteristics don't really seem like Blessed characteristics, do they? But what's perhaps even more perplexing than this is what Jesus starts with here. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. These things seem paradoxical to us. It seems like a paradox. How could a person who is poor in spirit be blessed? But you know what? God's perspective so often is paradoxical to our perspective. The way that God views things oftentimes is paradoxical to the way that we think things should be. And so Jesus said, you want to be truly blessed? You need to realize that you're poor in spirit. You want to be truly blessed? You should be mournful. You want to be truly blessed? Hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. But what does this mean here? What does it mean here to be poor in spirit? What is Jesus talking about here? Um, Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, blessed are the poor. Um, That's not what he says. He's not referring to a physical wealth. Though through the centuries, there have been a lot of people who have tried to interpret this verse to say that, to just say, well, he's talking about those who are, are actually, you know, financially poor. But what does he say? He said, blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. He's not talking about a physical wealth or a lack of physical wealth. He's talking about a a spiritual wealth. He's talking about a lack of, of spirituality. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the word poor here in Greek, it's interesting. There are a couple words in Greek that they could use for, for poor. There was one word that they would use where it was like, like a working class poor, where a person could be poor, but they were still working. They were scraping by, um, but they were like on the bottom of the totem pole. And then there was a word below that, and it was for the beggars. And this is the word that Jesus used. Those who are utterly destitute. Those who cannot help themselves. You cannot help your situation. And so what? And so you need to go beg. You need to go ask others to show mercy to you. You need to look beyond yourself to help. You you need to help. And listen, all of mankind is in this state. All of mankind is in this state of, of destitution and spiritual poverty. A couple verses for you. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 This is how Paul summed up, and he's quoting a lot from the Old Testament, um, mankind. He said, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not even one. You read that list, and you might think to yourself, well, goodness, who's this talking about? You point the finger at you. <laughs> point the finger at, at me. This is who Jesus is, is, or the scripture is speaking of. We are the ones who haven't sought God. We are the ones who are not righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 speaks of what our righteousness looks like to the Lord. And it's not a pretty picture. It says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. What's that saying? Well, that's saying your attempts at righteousness, your attempts to do good before God, how does the Lord view that? How does he see that? He says, those look like filthy rags to me. It doesn't please me. It's actually kind of gross to me. It's filthy. It's gross. 
that's not a good thing. As we see that, like that's not a good picture that the scripture paints for us. All have sinned. All have turned away from God. All are spiritually destitute. And this is why in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How bad did it get for us? We were dead. It couldn't get any worse. Couldn't get any worse than that. We were spiritually bankrupt, utterly destitute. On a spiritual level, we're merely beggars. Merely beggars, that's all. We cannot help our situation. And we, in and of ourselves, we cannot be pleasing to God. We're what? We're poor in spirit. We're poor in spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an amazing man of God, this is how he summed up what it, what it means to be poor in spirit. He said, it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. Let me read that last sentence again. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And you all are thinking, well, gee, Daniel, you're quite a downer. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks, brother. But Jesus said, when you come to this realization, that's when you're really blessed. When you realize this about yourself, that's when the blessing comes. When you realize that you have nothing that you can offer to the Lord, that's where he blesses you. That's where he comes and fills you. That's where he pours his life into you. When you come in your brokenness and you say, Lord, I have nothing that I can bring to you. I have nothing that I could offer to you. I, all my righteousnesses, they're like filthy rags before you. And Jesus says, I know. So let me come and let me fill you. Listen, this brokenness, that is the first step in salvation. That's the first step for a person to come to know Christ because nobody can come to know Christ. Nobody can truly be saved without realizing their poverty of spirit, that they cannot do it, that they cannot attain, that they cannot in and of themselves be made right before God. We must realize that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we're spiritually destitute, and that we have to have a savior. We have to have somebody who's, who's better than we are Pull us out. And that's why, you know, you read through the New Testament and Paul says over and over in the New Testament, it's by grace through faith, right? You read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, you're saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It is the gift of God. Amen. That's how we're saved. It's not, we're not saved because we worked for it. We're not saved because we're worthy of it. We're not saved because we somehow attained a higher level of spirituality. No, we're only saved on the basis of Jesus. Jesus himself, that's how we get saved. And you know, some might say, well, I mean, what about the law? Like you read in the Old Testament, the first five books, the Lord laid out his law. This is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to do. And so couldn't we, you know, just by keeping the law, couldn't we make ourselves right? This is what Paul says to that in Galatians 3, verses 22 through 24. He says, The scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what's that? That the promise, um, 
the promise by faith in Jesus Christ that to all who believe. It's by faith, right? But before faith came, he says, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Paul says the law was our tutor. The law was set in place so that we could look at it and we could see how perfect it is and say, I can't do that. The standard is too high. The bar is too high. I can't attain that level of perfection. The law was to show us you are in need of a savior. I mean, we just look at the first 10, right? The Lord says, these are my top 10. Just do these. And we can't even do that. We can't do those 10 things. And so the law, as we look at it, it should bring us to Christ. That's what Paul says. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we would look at the perfection that God requires and say, I'm destitute. I'm poor in spirit. I I can't do that. I can't attain that level of righteousness or perfection. And it, it is to bring us to Christ. It would cause us, as beggars do, to seek mercy from somebody who could actually help us. That's what the purpose of the law was. And in this case, Jesus alone is the only one who can show us that kind of mercy. And that is exactly what he came to do. Yes, Jesus came to teach. He came to preach. He came to be a good man. He came to be a good example. But what did he do? In his flesh, it says, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. So all of those things that we couldn't do, all of those things that, that we saw the standard was too high, the bar was set, it was too lofty for us to attain to that, right? All of those things, Jesus fulfilled that law. And then it says that he was crucified. You go and you read Isaiah 53, it talks about how this perfect lamb, all of our sin was placed upon his shoulders, all of our iniquity, and he was beaten, he was crushed, he was bruised. It says that it pleased the Father to crush him. As he was on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath upon sin. And how did he do it? In the perfect body of Jesus Christ. That's who he poured it out upon. The Lord took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our filthiness, everything that we've ever done that is just filthy, all of those attempts at righteousness where the Lord says, that's just filthy rags to me. You can't can't get to me that way. And it was crucified on the cross with Jesus. And now there's this great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that? Jesus took all of our sin, all of our shame. He brought all of that upon himself. He was punished for it. For what? So that he could exchange that and give us his righteousness. Isn't that amazing? The only righteousness that God can accept is his own righteousness. The only holiness that God will accept is his own holiness and praise the Lord that he has supplied that for us in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's the only righteousness that's acceptable to him. And this is what he's provided for us. And listen, that's what takes place at salvation. The moment a person is saved, when a person realizes their spiritual poverty, when a person realizes that they are utterly destitute, that they cannot attain, that they're not good enough, and then they call upon the name of Jesus Christ, 
At that moment, the Lord takes all of that sin, all of that shame. You think of the worst thing you've ever done, and it's nailed to the cross of Christ. He paid the penalty, paid it in full, and has given you his very own righteousness. So what? Well, Paul said, or Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For they'll receive the kingdom of heaven. They'll receive, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is theirs. We are able to stand before a holy God because that's the place that Jesus bought for us. That's the type of righteousness that he gave to us that we for all of eternity can stand before a holy God. But that salvation cannot and will not take place if a person is still filled with pride and self-confidence and self-assurance. It's only the person who comes to this realization that I am a spiritual beggar. I am spiritually impoverished and I, I need someone else. I need a savior. It's only at that point that a person can really be saved, that we are so poor in spirit that there's nothing, there's nothing that I can do to help my situation. David, King David, picked up on this in Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba. This is what he said, Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And so again, Yes, there, there should be remorse over sin. There should be mourning about it. Jesus says in this next verse that blessed are those who mourn. So that should take place. But brokenness, it's deeper than that. It's a breaking of your self-will. It's allowing your pride to be shattered at the cross of Christ. No more I, no more me, but only Christ. And that's why I believe Jesus started off with this first beatitude. I think that there's a structure and an order here to what Jesus was saying. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit because that's where spiritual life begins, right? This is where salvation begins. It begins by being broken. It begins by coming to this realization that I am nothing. I cannot do this on my own and it must be Jesus. I am poor in spirit, but Jesus is strong enough and able enough to save me and to give me his own righteousness. And it's through these means that a person enters the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord would take a person who is so utterly destitute, so unworthy, and say, you know what? I'm, I'm not only going to forgive you of your sin, but I'm going to give you my very own righteousness so that you could stand before the Father for all of eternity. That's amazing. Man, I, yeah, I can't even express it. But there's no other way than that. There's no other way that a person can enter into heaven except through these means. But you know what? Uh, remember, these are the be attitudes, right? And so these are things that we should be. And so this poverty of spirit, this isn't something that should just stop after we get saved. This is something that should be carried over into our walk with the Lord daily, that we would daily realize our spiritual depravity that we would daily realize our utter destitution, that we would daily realize that we cannot do it. Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can what? You can do nothing. 
Without, he was talking to his disciples. Without me, you can do nothing. And this was in the midst of a passage where Jesus is saying, hey, you need to abide in me. And what does this abiding look like? Well, it looks like a branch and a vine. As the branch abides in that vine and it receives all of its nutrients and everything, and if it's separated from the vine, then it's nothing. It's, it's going to die, right? That's how you need to be abiding in me, that you would be so attached and so connected to me. Why? For without me, you can't do anything. Without me, you can't do anything. And so, you know, maybe there are some here who don't know the Lord. And you've been hearing me and you realize, man, I've, I've been filled with my own pride and I've not really come to the cross. I've not really accepted Jesus. Listen, the Bible makes it very simple and Jesus did all the heavy lifting. Call out to him in faith. Confess your need for him. Confess your, your spiritual poverty. And what? The Bible says that any who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and you'll be saved. But you know what? For the rest of us, um, I think that this is a breaking that we all need. This is a breaking that should be continually taking place in my life, continually realizing that I don't deserve this. These amazing blessings and benefits that I've received by being a child of God, it's not something that I attained on my own. It's only by the grace of the Lord. These are the Beatitudes. Be poor in spirit. Realize um, Realize who you are and who he is. You know, we talked in the beginning a little bit about revival and how revival, this is something that happens here. This is something that happens to the church. And as this revival takes place into the church, I mean, the idea is that it overflows into the community and, and people come in and get saved that way. But it's an overflow of what takes place here. And so, you know, this is something that I hope takes place here. I, I want to see revival, but you know what? I want to see revival in my heart individually. And I want to see revival in each of our hearts individually, that we each individually would be revived in our walk with the Lord, revitalized, refreshed, renewed in our walk with Jesus Christ. Because, you know, we all go through valleys and we all go through times of, of being stagnant in our walk with the Lord. Um, and we need to be revived. But this revival is not going to take place in our lives if we come to the Lord every day with self-confidence. It's not going to take place if we come to him in our pride. This revival has to start with our being broken before him. Where did Jesus start? You know, it's interesting. This is one of the first lines of his teaching ministry. And he says, you want to be really blessed in this life? You, you want to really experience life in this life? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they can't do it. Blessed are those who come to me broken. And it's in this that the Lord is going to come to us and he's going to fill us and he's going to satisfy us. Jesus talked about in John chapter 6 how he is the bread of life. And who any who call upon him and taste of him, they're never going to thirst and they're never going to hunger. And don't you love what Jesus says there? He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you some bread. He doesn't say, hey, I've got a loaf over here. Why don't you take a bite of this? No, he says, I am the bread. I am providing myself to you. And if you taste of me, you're never going to hunger again. You're never going to thirst again. That is what I supply to you. And so as we come to the Lord in brokenness, realizing, Lord, I can't do this. It's not me. It's you. It's not my life. It's your life. It's not my righteousness. It's your righteousness. It's not my holiness, Lord. It's your holiness. Then Jesus is going to come in to that, that, 
brokenness and that emptiness, and he's going to fill it with himself. That's what revival is. Revival is Jesus himself being poured out into your heart. That's what it means. And so come to the Lord in that brokenness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual depravity. He says, you're blessed. You're in a state of utter joy and happiness and peace. You know, when we talk about it in these terms, it, se- it doesn't seem like, well, that doesn't seem like a good thing. It seems like it's going to hurt a lot, <laughs> right? And in a way, it will. But as we do that, we're going to actually find life. We're going to find life in Jesus. It's such a backward way of thinking. And listen, this certainly isn't something that you're going to hear in the world. The world's not going to tell you, hey, you need to be broken. The world's not going to tell you, hey, you know, you need to, you need to not walk in sin anymore. You need to repent of that. No, the world is going to say, ah, oh, you're worthy. You're worthy. The world is going to say, you're strong. The world is going to say, oh, you need to be self-confident. The world is going to say, you need to, you need to just find yourself, right? You need to find out um, who you are. But listen, the Bible tells us, the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us that. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the only way that we can have that true joy, peace, and satisfaction in this life is if we lose everything. It's if we lose ourselves. Check this out. Jesus said it. Not, uh, Luke 9, verse 23, he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How often? How often do we take up our cross and follow him? Daily. Daily. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Jesus said, you want to be my follower? You, you want to be my disciple? Come take up your cross daily. And, you know, in some ways we can become desensitized to this because I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but we've got our crosses on our necklaces and our earrings and we put it on our walls and we've got crosses everywhere. But in the first century, it, it was a, when somebody saw a cross, it was not a good thing. It was a device of torture and death. And Jesus said, take this thing up daily. What's that? Take up your flesh daily and nail it to the cross. Who you are, your spiritual destitution, take all of that sin, all of that filth, allow it to be nailed to the cross of Christ. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, deny yourself daily. Don't seek to save your life because those who seek to save their life, they're actually gonna lose it. But if you lose, if you lose your life, that's where you find life. Why? Because as you lose that life, you lose yourself. Jesus comes in and he fills you with himself. He said, I am the bread of life. I will be the one to come and satisfy you. I will be the one to come and fill you. Listen, our identity, who we are as people, it needs to be all wrapped up in Christ alone. You know, we are, we are in an identity crisis in our culture, right? I mean, we don't, know, we don't know who we are. But you hear things all the time like, oh, you just need to find out who you are. You know, uh, you just need to find your own identity or, you know, this question that has become a bag of worms. Like, what, what do you identify as? Listen, we can look for identity in a lot of different things. It's not all just the, the really bad things that we associate it with. We can look for identity in being a parent. Well, who are you? Oh, I'm a parent. 
Or you can look for identity in uh, being a spouse. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm this person's husband, and that's, that's who I am. Or you can look for identity in what your profession is or fill in the blank. But do you really want to know who you are? Do you really want to go and find yourself? Who is that person that you're trying to find? They are a dirty, filthy, stinking sinner. Why would you want to go find that person? Why would you want to go find that? Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. That's where your identity is. And listen, when we come to Christ, everything needs to change. We can't look for our identity in anything else but Jesus. It needs to be, who are you? I'm a follower of Jesus. That's who I am. My life is wrapped up in the life of Christ and Christ alone. Because listen, even if there are good things in this life where, you know, it's a good thing to be a, a, a spouse. Like I love, I love being married. It, it's a good thing. I mean, obviously all of us have professions and many of us are parents and these are, these are excellent things. But if that becomes the thing, listen, we need to come back to the cross and be broken because it's all about Jesus at this point. Our identity can be found in nothing else. In nothing else. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you know, there might be some of us who are feeling maybe stagnant. Like, you know, you love the Lord. You you know, you're walking with the Lord, but you're like, I just kind of feel stagnant in my walk with the Lord right now. Um, There's like a lethargy or or a complacency. I, I can't really explain it. And I have one encouragement for you. Listen, we all go through valleys and, and hilltops. This is my one encouragement for you. Go back to the place of being broken before the Lord. Go back to the place where you realize, I'm nothing in your presence. I'm nothing before you. All of my righteousnesses, all of my, my own attempts to get to you, it's as a filthy rag. There is no place for pride, for self-confidence. There's no place for self-assurance before the cross of Christ, only brokenness, only brokenness. And you know, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you think to yourself, yeah, you know, I'm good. Like I got, I got this down. Like I'm, I'm a moral person. You know, uh, I, I go to church, I tithe, I've been baptized, you know, I do good works. I take care of the poor. You can fill in the blank. But if you're doing these things out of, out of a heart of this is how I'm a Christian, and this is how I'm pleasing to the Lord, then you've missed the point. You need to go be broken before the cross because the only way that you can be pleasing to God is through his righteousness alone. Now, I'm not saying don't go do good works. That's what we're called to, but it should be out of a heart of and an overflow of, Lord, this is what you've done for me. And so how do we do that? How can we do this? How can, I mean, how do you just produce humility in your life, right? I mean, the moment that you, you think that you get to a point where you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really humble, like you've already lost it, right? You're, 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 you're not humble if you're, if you're at, that, at that place. Um, but how do we do it? How can we just bring that about in our lives? Let me tell you this. Humility is born in the presence of God. Humility is born in the presence of God. That is the only place. This isn't something that you can just bring about on your own. Humility is born in the presence of God. This is what caused Peter to cry out, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This is what caused Isaiah to say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is what caused that tax collector to beat his best and cry out, God, be merciful to me. 
a sinner. What was the common theme there? They were all in the presence of the Lord. They were all experiencing his holiness. They were all seeing this is who God is. And I am so aware of my brokenness that I am poor of spirit. Listen, we cannot come face to face with the living, eternal, holy God and walk away from that being proud. We can't do it. And so what do we do? How do we become poor of spirit? How do we be blessed in this way? Go to Jesus. Go to the Lord. Go know him. Go submit yourself to him afresh daily. Allowing your flesh to die. And saying, Lord, please fill me. I confess my brokenness before you. I confess my sin before you, Lord. Please fill me with your life. Why? Because humility is born in the presence of God and nowhere else. It's only at that place that the Lord will fill you. But you know what the amazing thing is? The Lord wants you to be there. The Lord wants you to be in that place with him. The Lord wants you to be in his presence. How do I know that? Check out Isaiah uh, chapter 57, verse 15. This is what the Lord says. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Right there, you got to stop and be like, okay, the Lord's about to say something here, right? Says this says the high and lofty one. This says the holy one. This says the one who inhabits eternity, right? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to receive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So where does the Lord dwell? Well, he's the one who is high and lofty, high and lifted up. There's none like him. And he dwells, he, it says he inhabits eternity. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds pretty amazing, right? He inhabits eternity. It says, I dwell in that holy place with the contrite ones. I dwell in that holy place with the ones who are poor in spirit, who realize, what could I offer this God? What, what could I offer to you? Lord, my righteousness is there like a filthy rag. But what does it say? It says that he dwells there in that place to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the hearts of the contrite ones. That's what the Lord does. He dwells in that holy place with those who are poor in spirit and he revives them. He revitalizes them. He refreshes them. He pours his very own life into you. And that's the blessing that Jesus talked about, right? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For they're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. What's so good about the kingdom of heaven? That's where Jesus is. That's where the Lord is. That's where he dwells. And it says that those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be really blessed in this life? I hope you do. But you're not going to find it by going out and trying to find satisfaction in this world. It can only be coming broken to Jesus. Broken before the cross, daily bringing yourself, daily bringing your self-will before him, your self-confidence, your pride, your money, your time, everything about you and saying, Lord, I'm broken. Would you please come and fill me? My life is not my own anymore. It's all wrapped up in you. Bringing yourself before the Lord and crying out, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
There's not anything in my hand that I could bring to the Lord. There's nothing. And so go be broken before the Lord. Daily bring yourself before the Lord. Daily allow your flesh to die. And what? Well, it says here in Isaiah that the Lord revives the spirit of the humble. And the Lord revives the heart of the contrite ones. You'll receive this revival. The Lord will pour himself into you. In his book, The Calvary Road, Roy Hessen said this. How many of you guys have read The Calvary Road? All right, it looks like a lot of you have some homework to do. It's so good. It is such a good book. And he said this. When I read this, I was just kind of floored. He said, the only life that pleases God and that can be victorious is his life. Never our life, no matter how hard we try. Inasmuch as our self-centered life is the exact opposite of his, we can never be filled with his life unless we are prepared for God to bring our life constantly to death. It's not our life. It's not the thing that I do. It's not me that can be pleasing to the Lord. It's only his righteousness. And so let's go be broken. Let's allow ourselves, our, our pride, our self-will to be broken before the Lord so that he can fill us. It's not our life, it's his life. So Lord, we love you. God, first of all, I just thank you so much for the cross. Lord, I thank you that you are willing to come and, and take our sin, to be sin for us, that we might receive your righteousness. What kind of God would do that? I, I, I really th agree with what the psalmist said, Lord. Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Lord, I'm a sinner. Who am I? But yet, Lord, I know that this is the truth because your word says that it is true. And so, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord. And I just pray that each of us would just present ourselves to you daily in this type of brokenness before you, Lord knowing that there's nothing that we could bring. Lord, it's, it's only you. So would you come and fill us? Lord, would you come and fill us with yourself? Lord, we've tasted, we know how good you are. And so fill us, Lord, refresh us, revive us.